The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Test Your Knowledge, Optimizing Prophylactic Management of Hemophilia with Novel and Emerging Non-Factor Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TNQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. You have just answered a question about a mednit hemophilia curve. So let's look uh, at some supporting evidence. Nowadays, we have a very good treatment for hemophilia compared to the last decade, but we still have some unmet in hemophilia A and B. Probably the first is to control breathtaking bleedings and joint deterioration. I think it's important because the goal that we uh, have to meet in the future is try to achieve zero bleeding in our patient. Of course, the main part is in joint bleed, but also we have to look for control subclinical bleed that could lead to some kind of joint deterioration. Nowadays, we have uh, an, an important amount of burden in the treatment of hemophilia. So another of the goals in the future is try to have an easier and less frequent administration of the treatment for patients with hemophilia. In the last uh, uh, decades, the most uh, important complication uh, in, uh, related to the treatment is the developed inhibitor. So in the future, we have to have available treatment uh, for patients with uh, um, and without inhibitors is an important issue. Uh, WFH has uh, encouraged us to uh, try to find a quality of life similar to the rest of the population for our patient with hemophilia. So probably in the future, we have to provide to our patients that they have a more active life similar to the rest of the population and have a social and, 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 um, and, and, and social uh, integration. Quality of life is another important issue um, because WFH has encouraged us that our patients achieve a, a similar quality of life to the rest of the population. So I think it's an important issue. We have to work in the future with the new therapies. And finally, of course, the most important issue is that we have an access to the treatment for all patients with hemophilia. So what is the treatment or what are the advances we have now in our patient? For people with hemophilia A and B, nowadays we are working and we are uh, offering our patient prophylaxis and also treatment for on-demand in, 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 and surgery. Uh, we started uh, the, the, the history with plasmatic uh, product and, and in the last year we have a standard and standard half-life for factor eight and factor nine. For patients with inhibitors, again, hemophilia A and B, we have APCC and recombinant 7A. And in the recent year, we have a new drugs, imitizumab, that is a factor eight mimetic that indicated the prophylaxis, but only in patients with hemophilia with and without inhibitor. So we have new therapies uh, uh, in, the, in the portfolio that are going to arrive in our uh, daily treatment. And most of these therapies that are called not factor therapy share uh, key similarities that may improve the management of our patient with hemophilia. The first we have to remind is that they are indicated in prophylaxis. It means that they are not uh, monotherapy. So in case uh, we have our patient require surgery or have a breakthrough bleeding, we need to uh, add treatment in this patient in case of patient with inhibitor by patient agent in patient with inhibitor, probably uh, a factor, uh, uh, a substitutive therapy with factor. 
Also, uh, is, is the new treatment are effective for both patients with hemophilia A and B. Um, also, a very important condition that they can be used in patients with and without inhibitor. So probably this, this two conditions may increase the number of patients that could be treated with this new non-substitutive therapy. Nowadays, with the administer factor, we have peak atrophs because this is the PK of the concentrate that we are using. And this kind of drug usually maintain a steady state, so they are not peak atrophs in the future with these drugs. Most of them, as you know, have a, a dramatic change because they have a subcutaneous administration compared with intravenous that we have uh, nowadays. And also, the administration is uh, with a very low frequency, relative frequency, compared with administration nowadays with therapy, intravenous therapy we are using. So, in this table, it summarizes the current and the major non-factor therapies. The first to arrive was emicizumab. It was the first generation of factor emimated. An indication is patient with hemophilia A with a without inhibitor. And it was approved uh, uh, in the first indication in patient with inhibitor and last in patient with uh, a without inhibitor. The second uh, uh, mimetic drug is mimetic. It's a second generation of factor emimetic. It's indicated in patient with hemophilia A. And now it's integrated in phase three. The next drug is an anti-TFPI that we are going to discuss later. It's concithumab. It's indicated in patients with hemophilia A and B. And now they are in phase three, but recently has been approved in Canada for patients with inhibitors against hemophilia B. Mastazumab is another anti-TFPI indicated also for hemophilia A and B, and now in the heart in the phase three. Amphitushiram, that we are going to discuss in the next module, it's a uh, RNA uh, drug that is interference uh, in the production of uh, thrombin and are indicated in, in hemophilia A and B and also on phase 3. And finally, there are uh, a different serpent. We are going to discuss about serpent protein C that is a serine protein inhibitor indicated in hemophilia A and B and now in the phase 1 and 2A. So this is more or less uh, the, 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 the drugs that are coming. So... Um, I want to uh, ask to my colleague uh, Guy Yam, what is your opinion about the recent approval in Canada for Contitumab and uh, what are their, their thoughts about this interesting uh, point? Yeah, thank you, Victor. Yes, it's, uh, it's nice to see that Contitumab was approved in one country. Um, as we know, you know, once a drug is approved in one country, um, especially a country like Canada, where you know, they do take um, safety very seriously, um, the fact that it was approved in Canada gives me confidence that you know, it will be approved in the United States as well, in Europe and throughout the world. So to me, it just signals that uh, you know, one health authority, a health authority that we can trust, um, does truly believe that um, the drug is safe and effective. All right, well, now we're going to explore uh, some of the mechanisms that underlie factor mimetics uh, in hemophilia. So uh, this is a figure uh, that uh, takes a look at the function of factor VIII uh, in comparison to a factor VIII mimetic. In the top figure, you can see uh, factor VIII-A with all its domains uh, working on a phospholipid membrane. Typically, that would be platelets. And factor VIII-A's job is to bring factor IX-A and factor X 
into the proper alignment, as you can see uh, to the right of the main figure. What the factory mimetics do is basically exactly what it says. They are mimicking the function of activated factor eight. These are bispecific monoclonal antibodies where each arm of the antibody will bind to one of the substrates. So in the figure below, you can see uh, a, a figure of an antibody. One arm grabs factor 9A, the other variable arm grabs factor 10. And as you move to the right, you can see that it brings factor 9A and factor 10 into the proper configuration to allow for the formation of factor 10A. So that's at its simplest uh, how these uh, factor 8 mimetic uh, drugs work. Now, there's been a lot of information already published on emicizumab. Emicizumab has been licensed uh, throughout the world and has become uh, a very commonly used drug for factor VIII uh, prophylaxis or for prophylaxis in hemophilia A. This slide really kind of summarizes the pivotal trials, which were all called the HAVEN trials. This summarizes HAVEN 1 through 4, uh, and this was a publication that kind of took all the um, uh, trials together and looked at long-term efficacy. And basically on the bottom, what you see is the annualized bleeding rate as we march from the early part, so weeks one through 24, and you could see the treatment interval weeks going to week 25 to 48 and so on, moving to the right. And essentially you see that the annualized bleeding rate um, is a bit higher at the beginning, but then it goes down and remains low and below one throughout the treatment period going out uh, beyond uh, two years and beyond even close to three years. The figure on the right is percent of patients with zero bleeds, again, looking at those intervals. And you can see that it starts out at about 71% and ends up at like 82% as patients have stayed on emicizumab. So overall, most patients on emicizumab are not bleeding. And even those that have bleeds, the number of bleeds is low. Moving forward, we also have the HAVEN-7 trial. So the HAVEN-7 trial is taking a look at using emicizumab in infants. For the most part, infants were not part of the HAVEN-1 through 4 trials. And so what is the HAVEN-7 trial? It's a multi-center open-label study of emicizumab in infants, basically meaning children less than 12 months of age with severe hemophilia A without factor VIII inhibitors. The treatment regimen is going to be basically the same treatment regimen that all other patients get. They'll have three loading doses of three milligrams per kilogram every week. And then the patients will be put on three milligrams per kilogram every two weeks for a year. So yes, they will be required to be on the every two week regimen for one year. In the extension phase beyond that, patients can choose to switch to a weekly regimen or an every four week regimen if they would like to do that. The main endpoints are the number of treated bleeds, including all bleeds, treated spontaneous bleeds, treated joint bleeds. But there are many other endpoints that are gonna be looked at, including inhibitor uh, formation, including uh, markers of bone health. And so we're gonna have a lot of data on this long-term seven-year trial. And you'll see that data coming out slowly over uh, the next seven to 10 years. Just briefly, what have we seen so far in the interim analysis of HAVEN-7 with respect to bleeding? And the panel on the left is the model-based ABR, annualized bleeding rate across different bleed categories. If you look at treated bleeds, you see that the rate is 0.4. It's pretty much the same as we saw in the pediatric trial HAVEN-2. All bleeds, which would include small things like hematomas, 
uh, that don't require treatment was 1.9. There were no treated spontaneous bleeds. There were no treated muscle bleeds. The panel on the right looks at the percentage of patients with zero bleeds across these categories. 77.8% of the patients had no treated bleeds and nearly 43% had no bleeds at all. Of course, 100% had no treated spontaneous bleeds because of course, uh, I mentioned already that the ABR there was zero. So all the treated bleeds uh, in Haven 7 were related to some sort of trauma. Moving on though, emicizumab is not the uh, only uh, factor eight mimetic uh, that uh, is in development, or I should say, of course, emicizumab is already licensed, but additional um, uh, next generation, if you will, factor eight mimetics are in development. The one that is furthest along is called Mimate. And uh, this is outlining to you the uh, Frontier 1 study. So the Mimate trials are called Frontier, the emicizumab trials, as you remember, were called HAVEN. So we'll refer to them as the frontier studies. This is the phase one, multiple ascending dose. That's what the MAD stands for, um, where patients um, in the first cohort started with a lower dose, and then the doses were increased uh, as we went from cohort one to two, two to three, and so on. Um, and you can see the dosing on the bottom. I don't think for this presentation, it's really important to remember all of this dosing. I mean, ultimately, uh, in the phase two, phase three trials, the dosing will be defined uh, uh, just as we have defined dosing with emicizumab. Well, let's take a look a little bit at the efficacy uh, in this phase one trial. Now, again, phase one trials are really not designed to look at efficacy. They're really for dosing and safety, but we can glean some information out of it. If you look at the panels, this is the uh, number of bleeds on the y-axis. If you look at cohort one, you see in the blue bars, traumatic bleeds, and the green bars, spontaneous bleeds. So in cohort one, which is the lowest dose cohort, we are seeing a number of bleeding events uh, in the different patients. But once we get to cohort two, the next highest dose, and moving along to cohorts three, four, and five, as the dose increases, you see very few bleeds uh, at all. There was one patient in cohort five that was a bit of an outlier that had quite a lot of spontaneous bleeds. But if you look overall at across uh, those boxes, cohorts two, three, four, and five, you don't see too many blue bars. In fact, most of the patients are not having any bleeds at all. And uh, MyMate appears to have a safe and well-tolerated profile. Um, the bottom line is that uh, there were some patients who had injection site reactions. Uh, these were mild. Um, the number's around 10%. It's a bit lower than what we saw with emicizumab. There was one patient who withdrew due to hypersensitivity reactions but otherwise the number of adverse events was generally speaking quite low. Uh, as you can um, see quickly in the numbers in the grid, I'm not gonna read every one of those numbers, but overall the percentage of uh, adverse events was low and those related to my mate were really quite low. So moving forward um, is the phase three uh, frontier uh, development program. Uh, there's going to be a number of trials here. Uh, the uh, first one is frontier three, There'll also be an extension study, uh, Frontier 4, um, and there'll be additional studies beyond that. Um, essentially, uh, the main um, approach for Frontier 3 is that there'll be a run-in period where patients uh, who are not currently on prophylaxis, that could include heme patients with and without inhibitors, those patients will then be randomized to either continue with no prophylaxis or to continue mimate prophylaxis weekly or mimate prophylaxis monthly. 
after uh, a period of time, uh, those patients will then uh, continue if they wish on an extension trial. Those who are randomized to no prophylaxis, of course, will be offered to go on MyMate, and those who are already on MyMate will continue uh, on MyMate. Another group will come into the trial already on prophylaxis. Again, this could be HEMA with or without inhibitors. Of course, those patients who already are on prophylaxis will not be randomized, and therefore they will uh, go straight onto MyMate either with a weekly dose or a monthly dose. And so essentially that's the uh, main uh, phase three trial uh, that is going to be uh, looking at enrollment. You can see uh, a, uh, another trial on the bottom, which will include pediatric patients. Uh, and uh, that is designed uh, in a fairly uh, similar uh, fashion. So what about non-factor therapy with TFPI antibodies? So let's, let's start to this class of action and learn more. So anti-TFPI antibodies are under development for the management of patients with hemophilia in vitro. The first of, of this class is Concitumab. Concitumab is assessed uh, in the Explorer 7 trial, uh, focused mainly in inhibitors. And as we mentioned before, it's not currently approved in Canada under the regulatory review in the United States and also in Europe. So uh, the, the trigger of coagulation nowadays, the exposure of tissular factor, this first reaction uh, of tissue exposure of tissular factor uh, allowed to uh, join with uh, factor 7A. And this complex is able to activate uh, factor 10 and after several reactions, to generate a high amount of thrombin and the end uh, lead to the blood clot. So I think one of the most important um, inhibitors of the coagulation in this phase is uh, TFPI, the inhibitor of tissular factor pathway, and this can regulate it, uh, the activation of coagulation. So the map is antibody designed uh, to join to TFPA. He's joined to one of the domain for administration in the subcutaneous prophylaxis across all these different subtypes of hemophilia and works independently of from factor 8 and factor 9 and increase uh, the uh, initiation phase of the coagulation through this increase of the levels of uh, uh, 10A and this, uh, this, 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 uh, uh, this mechanism allow to create uh, enough amount of thrombin to generate uh, and prevent bleed. So uh, the clinical development program, as I mentioned, is, is called Explorer 7. Explorer 7 is, is the, the, uh, the clinical development to, to explore how is the how the, this molecule acts in, in patients with in vitro. Um, the design here in, in the slide is uh, a patient who came from the mom. The main important part is the comparison between ARM1 and ARP2. Uh, this group of patients came from on-demand treatment and this patient continue with no prophylaxis and the comparison is against concitumab and prophylaxis. So this is the main part because M3 and ARM form uh, are prophylaxis uh, with concitumab and at the end of the trial of the patient uh, uh, used uh, concitumab as a prophylaxis treatment. So during the development of this molecule, we observe some thrombotic event, not fatal thrombotic event. So uh, this leads to modification in the, uh, in the mitigation measure to treat breakthrough bleeding and also to uh, use um, uh, a different doses that I'm going to explain later. 
So following the restart of the trial uh, after observe this all this uh, complication and also to design this new measure, we have not observed any kind of thrombotic event following this uh, this new recommendation. So uh, uh, in the in Ash twenty twenty two, the result uh, of uh, in Sporin seven the use of conditomab inhibitor patient, we could observe that the uh, overall median ABR was zero, both in hemophilia A with inhibitor and hemophilia B with inhibitors, and also uh, across all the different subgroup of treatment, spontaneous treatment. Uh, uh, or traumatic or treatment of traumatic joint bleeding, the, uh, the, uh, the, the median ABR was zero. And there was an update in, 2000, uh, in 2023 in, in the HEHAT meeting when the median ABR for arms 1 to 4 concomitant was uh, 0.8 for treat spontaneous and traumatic bleeding episode, and the median uh, was uh, zero for both treating and spontaneous traumatic joint bleed and targeting joint in ARP 1 to 3. So this is a very interesting uh, interesting um, uh, program of concithumab. Um, to conclude uh, from the result for exploring several concithumab prophylaxis, we can say that the overall median ABR of concithumab prophylaxis was zero. That was effective in reducing ABR compared with patients with no prophylaxis with, in, in, with hemophilia A and B and inhibitor. That the estimated mean ABR was around 1.7 for concitumab prophylaxis and 11.8 for patients with no prophylaxis. That appear to have a safe and well-tolerated profile in both uh, hemophilia A and B with inhibitor. That there was not thrombotic events were reported after restarting the treatment. Uh, in the prior treatment pause, there was only one event of non-fatal renal infarct in this trial. And the concithomal exposure was stable over the time and free TFPI was suppressed and thrombin generation potential normalized. And uh, when we analyze the quality of life, there is a, a real positive trend observed in the different domains of concithomal. So let's take a look at some other uh, non-factor therapies with different mechanisms of action. One, a small interfering RNA and one, a serine protease inhibitor. Let's start with fetusaran. Fetusaran is a small interfering RNA uh, that basically suppresses the production of antithrombin. Now you might ask, why would we want to do that? Well, hemophilia is a disease where thrombin generation is impacted. So patients basically cannot generate a sufficient amount of thrombin. Antithrombin is the inhibitor of thrombin. So another approach to uh, improve thrombin generation in patients with hemophilia is not to necessarily do something to improve thrombin generation, but to reduce the uh, elimination of the thrombin that is generated or the inhibition of the thrombin that is generated. So essentially what fetusaran does by knocking antithrombin down is allows the small amount of thrombin that patients with hemophilia can generate to work in a feedback loop to generate more and more thrombin. So fetusaran has been studied and continues to be studied in multiple phase three trials. We call them the ATLAS trials. So we have the ATLAS-INH trial, which is for patients with hemophilia A or B with inhibitors. The ATLAS-AB trial is for hemophilia A or B patients without inhibitors, which includes an on-demand arm. The ATLAS-Pediatric study, of course, is a pediatric study. And the ATLAS-PPX trial 
is a patient is a trial in patients with hemophilia A or B with or without inhibitors who have previously been on prophylaxis. That's what makes Atlas PPX different from Atlas AB. And then ultimately, all the patients in these trials can enroll in a long-term extension trial called the Atlas OLE or um, long-term extension trial. So let's take a look at some results from the trial. So first of all, does fetusaran do what we want it to do? And the answer is yes. You can see the figure on the left is the mean percentage change in antithrombin level. And uh, the antithrombin level goes down significantly, 80 to 90%. Does that result in improved thrombin generation? So the panel just to the right shows the thrombin generation. And you can see that in the blue, which is the patients who receive fetusaran, thrombin generation does go up. So the bottom line is, does fetusaran reduce antithrombin as intended? It does. Does it increase thrombin generation as intended? It does. And then does that result in reduced bleeding? Because ultimately that's the goal as we heard from the initial slide on unmet needs. And so you can see here from the ATLAS PPX trial that the patients who were previously on factor or bypassing agent prophylaxis had a median observed ABR of 4.4. And while they're on fetusaran, the median was zero. The percentage of patients who had zero treated bleeds on factor or bypassing agent prophylaxis was 16.9%, and that increased to 63% in the patients on fetusaran. So this slide sort of encompasses everything that fetusaran is about. Looking into a little bit more detail, here's results from the ATLAS INH trial. Remember, these are patients with inhibitors. The left panel is the patients who were on using bypassing agents on demand. They had an median ABR of 16.8, a mean of 18.1. On fetusaran, the median was zero and the mean was 1.7. So fetusaran clearly was very effective in patients with inhibitors at reducing bleeding in comparison to previous on-demand treatment. Here's the fetusaran ATLAS AB trial. And again, this included an on-demand arm. These are patients without inhibitors and they could have hemophilia A or B. And similarly, you see in the on-demand arm, an ABR of 21.8. When fetusaran, the median is zero. In the right panel, you see the percent of patients with zero treated bleeds, uh, which is 5% for those on on-demand and 50.6% for those on fetusaran. If we expand it to those less than or equal to three treated bleeds, it's 15% for the on-demand clotting factor concentrates and goes up to 84% or almost 84% for fetusaran. And then here, we're looking at the results of the ATLAS PPX trial, where we have patients previously on bypassing agent prophylaxis, either hemophilia A or B with inhibitors, their ABR 6.5, on fetusaran, the median ABR is zero. In the right panel is patients hemophilia A or B without inhibitors. Their median ABR on factor prophylaxis is 4.4 and on fetusaran was zero. So moving on to the uh, serpent molecule. So this is a molecule that's intended to inhibit activated protein C or APC. So you see the mechanism on the right. First to understand that we have a circulating pool of protein C. Protein C requires activation by thrombin. That activation results in activated protein C and activated protein C then goes back to inhibiting thrombin by inhibiting both factor 5A and factor 8A. 
The idea here though, is that only the activated pool of protein C is being inhibited. The regular pool of protein C is not being touched. And the thought behind this is that could this result in improved hemostasis without increasing the risk for thrombosis? And that's uh, still to be determined. Here you can see that serpent PC has been well tolerated. Um, you can uh, as well see the uh, annualized bleeding rates that go down significantly from in the 30s down to a six in part three, down to two in part four. There's several different parts here that involve different groups of patients. Suffice it to say that if you take a look at serpent PC overall, the median ABR in this group of patients who is uh, particularly um, um, challenging because they've had a lot of uh, previous bleeds. These are patients who've never had prophylaxis in their lives. Having their ABR down to 2.2 is really quite interesting. There were no observed treatment-related adverse events. And then interestingly, there were no increases uh, or important increases in the D-dimer. So that does suggest that perhaps this molecule will not increase the risk for thrombosis the same as the other ones. Now, again, that has to be tested in a much broader trial and in a phase three trial. Uh, Victor, do you have any thoughts or comments about Serpent PC? I, th I think that you, I only want to stress one of your comments that if we have to try to find the correct balance between hemostasis and thrombotic. So probably we need more data, as you mentioned, in the phase three trial. So I think that I'm convinced that in the future we have more insight about uh, this new molecule. I think it's a very interesting approach, but probably we need more data in the future. Thank you. So I think the, the next step uh, is how, to, how to, to prepare, how to introduce in the, in the clinical use of these new non-factor therapies. So in the next part, uh, Dr. Jan and I, we will provide some concise sample how to spread the become available drug in the market. I will start saying that uh, some of the new therapies, as we discussed in the first part, will require less frequent administration, that most of them are drugs that we are going to use subcutaneously, but there are some differences, mainly in the frequency and the route of administration of this drug. All of them will administer uh, subcutaneous. But uh, in, in, the, in the drug they are in, in, uh, in development, aditrombin will administer one monthly to once every other month. Uh, in the case of anti-TPI, uh, will vary from one daily to one weekly. And in the anti-APC, uh, the administration will be one monthly. So at the end, all these molecules will offer uh, less burdenness prophylaxis with uh, compared with the treatment that we have now uh, nowadays, and probably they are going to increase adherence, and um, probably with, uh, this uh, all this factor will increment the quality of life of our patient. Talking about uh, how uh, can patient and health professional prepare for the drug. Um, for both for adolescent children and adulthood, uh, fituzirana and concimab have a potential role for uh, emerging no factor fituzirana and concitumab in children, adults, and individuals. And also, we have uh, some concerns related to these drugs. As we mentioned, uh, there have been some kind of thrombotic complications that lead uh, to change uh, the the, uh, the treatment that we use for treatment through bleeding. And
also they have changed in the in the different dosing regime of this factor so i want to discuss with you first how to use uh, how to deliver the uh, map uh, based on the result of the different trial that there was different patients with different levels of constitumab in plasma this is the design for the molecule in the in the ongoing clinical trial and also uh, in the future the molecule will start with a one milligram per kilogram body loading dose uh, and the next day is following with the dose of 0.2 milligram per kilogram body weight and after four weeks of administration of daily 0.2, there will be a, a, a PK uh, determination. And based on the plasma levels, they are going to modify the dose. If the patient um, is, is uh, lower than two, uh, 200 nanogram per milliliter, we are going to increase the dose to 0.25. And the patient is in the, in, in the higher part above of 4,000 um, uh, nanogram per milliliter, we are going to decrease the dose of to um, 0.15. If the patient is between these two values, they are going to maintain the same doses that we started. So I think it's important, this consideration, and also uh, that the patient prior to initiation of map have to dis stop the prophylactic treatment, because I mentioned there is one day of loading dose, and then they, we achieve very fast the steady state, um, this treatment should be initiated in, initiated in, in the non-bleeding state and of course due in some lean and younger patients we have to avoid uh, to administer the drug intra, in, intramuscular so we have to inject it uh, try to find a place when you can administer the, the, the drug in a in subcutaneous way so in the next part Dr. Jan is going to explain some consideration about fitusiran um, administration. So Guy, when, when you want, you can start it. Yeah, so, you know, similar to concizumab, uh, fitusiran is going to also have uh, some therapeutic drug monitoring and dose adjustments. And that also came out of the clinical trials. And what was found in the clinical trials is that patients who had thrombotic events uh, ended up mostly having antithrombin levels of 10% or lower. Whereas patients at higher antithrombin levels still had good bleed protection, however, did not have thrombotic events. And so as a result, it was determined that we want to keep the lower threshold of antithrombin at around 15%, which offers a little bit of a buffer above 10% to try to mitigate this risk of thrombosis in fact, to try to even eliminate the risk for thrombosis if that's possible. It was also noted that patients at um, higher levels of antithrombin, certainly above 35%, we saw that there was a, a reduced efficacy. In other words, we started to see bleeds. And so as a result of all of this simulation work, uh, looking at the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, understanding the risks uh, of thrombosis at low levels, the risks of bleeding at high levels, it was determined that patients on fetusiran should maintain an antithrombin level between 15 and 35%. So how are we going to do that? Well, basically all the patients in the trials, uh, even those who had been on different doses, uh, were assigned to receive a dose of 50 milligrams every two months. Uh, if that turns out to be the dosing regimen for most patients, that's gonna be pretty fantastic when you think about the fact that you'd only need six subcutaneous injections per year. But essentially that will be the start. 
then patients will have antithrombin levels measured. If there's any level below 15%, meaning the risk for thrombosis is probably higher, the dose will be reduced to 20 milligrams every two months. If those patients continue to demonstrate low antithrombin levels, in other words, they're extremely sensitive somehow to fetusaran, they actually would then be discontinued. For the patients on 50 milligrams every other month, if it turns out that their, their antithrombin level is too high, in other words, more than 35%, their dose will come back to once a month. It'll be the same dose, 50 milligrams, but only once, but, but then once a month instead of every two months. If still the antithrombin level is too high, they will then go back to the dose of 80 milligrams once a month, which was actually the original dose in the phase three trials. And just to complete things, for those who had a dose reduction to 20 milligrams every two months, if their antithrombin level is then too high, they could end up on a dose of 20 milligrams every month. So in other words, patients could end up on doses as low as 20 milligrams and as high as 80 milligrams, but either 20, 50, or 80, it's not um, you know, any number in between. And they may end up on a monthly dose or an every other monthly dose. It is estimated that 80% of the patients will be able to be treated with the 50 milligrams every two month dose uh, and that uh, there won't be a need for uh, uh, too many dose adjustments. The other important thing to realize is that once patients achieve an antithrombin level that is stable based on you know, these early dose adjustments, uh, it is believed that these patients will not require further dose adjustments. In other words, when you start somebody on fetusaran, you may have to make a dose adjustment or two just to find what is the appropriate dose for that patient. But once you get a stable antithrombin level between 15 and 35%, the feeling is that that will continue to remain stable and that we won't have to continue to be checking antithrombin levels and making dose adjustments constantly. And so with that, I think we can conclude by saying that um, there are potentially a lot of benefits uh, that are going to come with these non-factor therapies. Primarily, as Victor said, these are gonna be all administered subcutaneously. So instantly there's an advantage there. You can see many of them are gonna be administered at relatively infrequent intervals, once a month, every two months, once a week. But even for those that are administered daily, there may be some advantages to a daily administration. That could include the fact that the washout of that medication will be quicker. And for patients who are having some sort of side effects or somebody who might need surgery, um, or somebody who's at more risk for thrombosis, we might want something that has a daily uh, infusion with a uh, rapid uh, washout. Um, the other thing is that most of these uh, molecules or most of these drugs are gonna come with very simple devices to use. So I think overall, so we're looking at these drugs, uh, we're going to substantially reduce the treatment burden. It looks like we will also improve the efficacy. And then we will have to monitor for the risks for thrombosis as we've seen some of these drugs have led to some of that. And so we'll need to have some good strategies for monitoring the patients. Victor, any final thoughts? I fully agree with your um, summarize of this thought. I think that in the future, we have to uh, select the right population for the different drugs. Um, I think that we have been discussing that uh, with the new drugs, we are not able to individualize, but seeing uh, uh, how we are going to uh, dose consistent map and also the presentation you have uh, give about 
how to monitor uh, antitromine, I think we, we are able to monitor in the future and also to individualize the treatment of our patients. So I think that you have uh, done a very good summarization of, of this new uh, drug. I think it's uh, the future is, is very hopefully about the, uh, to admit, uh, uh, to cover the admit need that we have with more of our patients still. I'd like to thank all of you uh, for joining us, uh, joining me and Professor uh, Jimenez Uste from Madrid uh, for this uh, learning module. Uh, we hope it was informative for you, and we hope to see you again soon at another uh, of these events or uh, in in-person meeting as well. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TNQ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.